Please pronounce your name correctly for me. <laughs> Erica Hess. Now, your background is you're from in the United States and you're a painter yourself and you also run a podcast. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about like the thing that most interests me is how do creative people even get made? So like, were, was your family creative? Did you have siblings, a teacher in high school or whatever? Like, how did you even get to the point of wanting to be in the creative industries? Well, first off, thank you so much for having me on here. It's such a pleasure to connect with you and talk to you about my practice and the podcast and um, what I'm creating. So I was born in a really small town, technically in Appalachia in Ohio. So it was an interesting upbringing in that I had a lot of space and a lot of time um, to explore. Uh, I was in the woods a lot. <laughs> of course, this was pre-internet, so I had to entertain myself. And it was a really great childhood. You know, I, I was always outside. My mom and older sibling actually supported and encouraged my artistic habit, I'll call it. <laughs> you know, because what I enjoyed doing as a, as a kid was kind of being by myself in the woods or drawing in my, my bedroom. And so when I first went to college, I actually didn't think that it was a feasible thing to study art. It was something I'd always done and I was good at, and I was like the art kid in high school, but I thought, I'm going to try something else. I really want to check out what else is going on. And so it wasn't until my sophomore year that I realized, no, I need to, <laughs> I need to be in art class. I was like not going to my regular classes. I was going to my minor classes, my, my art classes. So I ended up working with some really incredible, incredible mentors, Glenn Sebulosh and Diane Fitch at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. And they really changed the game for me because they accepted me into a program where we went to Italy to study painting. And so not only were we looking at paintings and learning about paintings, but I had my French easel on my back. I was trucking all over Florence, you know. It was amazing. And I still actually have the sketchbook where I literally wrote down like, this is it. Like, this is what you are supposed to do. Don't forget this feeling. And I, and I haven't. So I've continued to paint since then. I went on to Boston University to get my graduate degree where I studied with John Walker and Dana Frankfurt. And it was really, you know, programs differ. There's a lot of different uh, painting programs, art programs. And this one was really steeped in being in your studio and just really grinding into your work. And so that's what I did for a couple of years. And it was a really, really incredible time of growth for me. I find it very interesting that you you mentioned your mentors and the people who influenced you a lot. Like, mm -hmm. I, I I think back on my own career, and I, I maybe I just wasn't very good friends with or didn't connect with my professors very much. But I feel like if I mention my professors' names, they're going to get angry with me for <laughs> having done it. Like they're, they're like, yeah, don't say you were my student. Like, no. Don't associate me with that. No, I'm, I'm sure you'd be thrilled. <laughs> well, many, many of them are dead at this point, or at least senile. But yeah, <laughs> but it, it's it's an interesting thing because like there are certain schools, certain names, even that like it's very prestigious to mention these names, and then there are certain names that it's like, eh, yeah, whatever, whoever, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people are very into it, like. 
My undergraduate school probably would love it if I would mention their names, but my graduate teachers, I remember they intentionally told us, they said, do not work like us. Do not think you are our apprentice or you're the next in the line of my lineage. Mm -hmm. We will simply teach you how to do things and then you go do your own thing. Yeah, it's interesting working with faculty, mentors, painters in general. You know, for me, and I think this plays into my personality and, and where I've gone with my work, which is I really love connecting artists and people. And so I actually am still in contact with my undergraduate professors because they kind of went above and beyond in supporting me as an artist. I mean, not just in like helping me with navigate graduate school, because keep in mind, again, you know, my parents didn't go to college. You know, my dad immigrated from Germany. Uh, my mom was like from this area, both hardworking and would do everything they could for me. But when it came to colleges, they, my mom literally didn't know how to assist me. And so when I was getting ready to go out of state and pursue that degree, you know, they really kind of stepped up to bat to, to help me navigate that course. And also it was funny for my undergrad, we didn't have studios. You know, we had our big painting room where we'd all work from the model. I was trained from observation and Diane let me use her office, the <laughs> back of her office as a studio. So at night when she wasn't in there, I would go in, <laughs> I would paint in the back of the space. And, you know, that really meant a lot to me too, because it gave me a separate space that wasn't in, you know, a crappy apartment with my four roommates and a cat or, you know, with all these other painting students. So they, they, they were great. Don't knock the crappy apartment. Sometimes they can be the, sometimes limitations are the best sort of creative juices. It's very true. I've had a lot of those uh, crappy apartments. I think the best was after graduate school, I went on to, you know, it was right after the recession. So what did me and my friends decide to do? We, of course, moved to like the most expensive city in the world. So we go to New York where I'm living in like a crawl space, you know what it's like <laughs> with my studio underneath. It makes for a good story and a good memory. But at the time it was, you know, interesting. <laughs> Yeah, but we all do think crazy, stupid things like this in our lives. I mean, fuck, mm -hmm. I was a drug addict and I toured around with rock and roll bands as a roadie for years. So nice, like, I've, nice. you know, like I've had my my fill of very interesting <laughs> stories for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but we all do this. I mean, you know, the, the creative path is very rarely a straight line. It, mm -hmm. it always takes us down some circuitous sort of pathway to find some other thing that we think is irrelevant and the, which ends up becoming incredibly relevant later in our careers. Mm -hmm. Moving forward, you also run this podcast mm -hmm. called, go ahead. I and, like your work. Mm -hmm. Yep. I like your work. How did you come to start that? Yeah. So fast forward past Brooklyn and all of that stuff. And I was living in Boston and I helped co-found Musa Collective in Alston, Massachusetts. So it was a collective of about 12 artists where we would either exhibit our work or we'd curate shows in the space. And it was a really fantastic experience. And what I was really interested in that was, of course, seeing work and creating dialogue. And after about two years of that, I decided to move. So here comes, like, again, having those limitations placed on you? How do you work within limitations? 
So we were going to relocate to Columbus, Ohio. So I'm originally from Ohio. We were moving back for more space, studio space, which was great to have. And I'm like, well, what the hell am I going to do during this transition? And I listen to podcasts when I paint. I go back and forth between listening to nothing, listening to music, and then, of course, bringing in a podcast. And I, I originally thought I was going to write about work. I was like, okay, I'm going to start this website. I'm going to write about artists' work who I really like. But to be totally honest, whenever I write, I mean, you know how it is writing artist statements and all that good stuff. I mean, you just start, for me anyway, I just keep going and going and redo. So I thought I'd just rather talk about people's work. I'll start a podcast. So I bought a shitty mic and I started a podcast. And it was it was a great experience. I, like I said earlier, I really love connecting with artists and my favorite place to be is in a studio talking to somebody about their work. It really moved from there. And, you know, I just recently shared this story on the podcast that my first few episodes, actually a lot of them was recorded in a minivan outside with a mic and you can, it's false. You can actually hear like acorns, like hitting the like clink, clink, clink. Nice. Yeah, and and it really just grew from there. So that's really how it started. I've actually thought about putting like a nice little windy sort of birds chirping sound behind <laughs> my podcast, kind of like give it give it that little outdoorsy feeling. Yeah, yeah, immerse people in that space. Yeah, yeah, give them a little bit more of an auditory experience kind of thing. <laughs> Maybe you're headed towards being a sound artist more. I no, mean. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I not I, well don't get me wrong I, I did think about it but it was a extremely fleeting thought yeah so actually i have a couple questions based on what you've already said here so uh, you said you listen to podcasts while you're in the studio mm -hmm. i mm -hmm. find that when i go in the studio i love listening to podcasts because it sort of keeps my mind a little active but not super mm -hmm. active mm -hmm. but i do not listen to art podcasts while mm -hmm. I'm making art. Yep. So I'm interested, what kind of podcasts do you listen to when you're actually working in the studio? <laughs> I'm with you. I cannot listen to art podcasts while I'm creating art, like hijacks your, you know, the way you're thinking. I actually listen to health and wellness podcasts. So podcasts about meditation. I'm really interested in meditation. So that's something I also listen to uh, Radio Lab, still a classic. In fact, I remember listening to Radio Lab like back in the day before podcasts in my studio. So it's kind of fun because they still have the same intro. So it takes me back. I try not to listen to too much of the like, I'm not going to listen to CNN or something like that either, because that also hijacks my, my thought process in my studio. So I kind of try to keep it like pretty chill mm -hmm. or educational. <laughs> yeah, I'm always interested because I mean, both you and I, we do podcasts. So it's always like, so what do you listen to on your free time? Kind what, of do you, what do you listen to? I'm curious what you listen to. Oh, yeah. See, I've never admitted this publicly. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, well, I mean, I listen to my share of like Radio Lab, 99% Invisible, those mm -hmm. kinds of classics. I mean, the, these are literally just like, those are, they've always been there. Um, but then there are those random ones that like people would never guess I do. Like, um, I think it's called ID10T with the hmm. Chris Hardwick. Okay. Um, yes, yes, yes. I, yeah. It used to be Nerdist. Now it's ID10T. Um, I, I enjoy his, he's got a, he's a comedian. So it's, it sort of brings a little levity to it and that's kind of fun. But the, my current fetish actually is um, Wondry, 
they do mm. these magnificent uh like six part drum dramatic like murder mystery things and like they're very enticing and they they do <laughs> and it's very it's very um npr-ish in their in their you know sound effects and their all the, the drama and the building of the drama and they're really quite good about it so yeah the the podcast uh publishing house i think they're called wondry and they have a whole series of different ones Ooh, i might have to check that out i haven't they're quite to that, fun though. yeah yeah, yeah. Doc, dr death is one of the their big ones mm-hmm. oh right. i think i've yeah. heard of that a friend was like you should check it out and i haven't yet so maybe this will uh push me over the edge to do it in my studio today later <laughs> yeah it's very entertaining it's it's gripping sort of stories um, the, they, they don't do them frequently enough for me though but whatever <laughs> You also mentioned artist statements. Mm-hmm. I hate artist statements mm-hmm. with such a passion. Mm-hmm. I hate the fact that they're necessary. I hate the fact that like just everything about them, be it whether it's an artist statement that I have to put on the wall in an exhibition or as a uh, you know, thing in a book or whether it's for a grant or for a residency, I hate them. I mean, if I wanted, I, when I was in college, my first grant that I applied for, they said, write one page about your work. So I used a really, really big font and I wrote, <laughs> Classic. well, I, I wrote, if I wanted to write about my artwork, mm-hmm. I would have been a writer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I sent that off and needless to say, I did not receive that grant, <laughs> but it made me feel good. Because mm-hmm. I, f- I feel that artist statements are like the bane of our existence. Um, mm-hmm. Because, well, I have to even like expand on that a little bit more for somebody who's listening is I'm from America. I've lived in the Middle East and I now live in Europe. Writing artist statements in each of these continents is a different task. They don't use the same vocabulary. They don't have the same expectations. In America, you're expected to more or less be your own cheerleader and convince people of how amazing you are and what how you know emotionally engaging your work is. In Europe, it's more about just being humble and just saying, yes, this is what I do. <laughs> and I use these techniques and you should be impressed with my craftsmanship. And this was my mentor. So you should be impressed because I am the apprentice of this master. That's it. And then, of course, in the Middle East, it's all about showing off and, you know, oh, I used diamonds and gold for this. So therefore, it should be seen as expensive and impressive. So how what's your opinion on artist statements? (laughs) Oh, well, honestly, I feel the same way as you about artist statements. I think every artist feels that way, right? Like every artist that I connect with or talk to feels the same way. And it's hilarious because I just had to redo my artist statement recently. And what do I do? I talk about artwork all the time. That's that's what I do. I enjoy doing it. And then it comes to my statement and I'm sitting there and I'm like, what the fuck? Like. It's just, it starts to, it's, I end up going into my studio. This is what I do when I get uncomfortable. Same thing in college. I actually failed a math course. Why? I'd be going to my math class and then I'd be like, you know what? I'm going to go to the studio instead. Same thing with my artist statement. And I think it's interesting what you were bringing up in terms of, it depends on where you're at and who's going to be reading it, right? So that means artists are constantly having to redo their artist statement. 
Or if you want to expand into a new direction or a new body of work, a new artist statement. I, I find it super overwhelming. And in fact, just recently, and I'd never done this before, I ended up contacting somebody that I'd worked with on the podcast who's a gallerist, you know, that is her deal. She had studied, you know, I think an undergrad in painting and then went on to do more like theory-based stuff. And like, that's what she does. She writes about artists and art. And so she actually helped me a bit with the statement. And, and I really think that's why artists should really hang out with writers for lots of reasons, but that's one of them because that is what they do. They work with ideas in words. We work with ideas visually. Finding a partnership, I think, can be really beneficial to an artist if you feel the way that we do about artist statements. Oh, indeed. I mean, I've talked to different people, and some people say that an artist should always write their artist statement mm -hmm. and their artist bio, because it seems like now I found out that this is two different things. I didn't even realize that. <laughs> but and then, And then on top of that, some other people say that it's perfectly legitimate for a writer or a curator or whoever to write it. But they, the, the caveat I get is that basically you should credit the writer mm -hmm, in the statement, mm -hmm. which is like, okay, fine, whatever. I don't care. As long as you fund me, I don't give a shit whether I credit yeah. somebody else or not. Like, it's fine. <laughs> so, you know, there's there's two veins of it. Like my personal opinion, like I had recently had a curator. Uh, I, I have, a, I had a show that was planned for, well, right now. Oh, yeah, and yeah. so that got postponed, but, uh, the curator wrote a really lovely little blurb about it and all that. And it, it is way more interesting than anything I ever wrote. Right. That That's the thing. I'm like, this like, is so much better than what I'll make the work. That's where I'll put my time. You know, you'll make the work. If you can have somebody like a curator come in who's, of course, having a dialogue with you, write the statement. Yeah, it's probably going to be better than what I would write. You know what I mean? So, well, like when I, I find when I write, I'm writing for convincing people that my philosophical perspective <laughs> on the world and that my my technical material choices were will engage you and make you weep in some way because you're just like, you you feel so moved by my work, which is a bunch of bullshit. People just want things that look pretty in their homes and they're like, hey, I like that. That's pretty much all people what really want outside of prestige or these other kinds of things. So like I found that the the other guy, my this curator, he did a fabulous job. He came up with little, little, little great little snippets, like nice little like you know, phrases that I can just copy and paste and that, that I can use on Instagram. It's marvelous. And I think that brings up an interesting topic, which is, you know, at some point, at least when I was a bit younger, I was like, as artists, we're expected to do it all. And that would, is what makes us legitimate. You know what I mean? Like I did this. I wrote, exactly, exactly. And it's casting off those types of ideas that I really think allows artists to flourish. I mean, for example, I never thought I would start a podcast. Why? Because I was a painter and that's what I did. I did not do anything else. I was a painter. I was in the studio. I made work. That was what my life revolved around. And I felt like doing anything outside of that took away from my credit or whatever it was. And it's completely not true. And I think that the mentality behind that is shifting a little bit. I don't know if you have had that experience, you know, or yeah, work with a curator, have them write your stuff, start a podcast, you know, begin a space, do what you want to do. 
Well, I'm I'm a professor uh, for my careery kind of stuff, and I've been in my ivory tower of academia for like twenty <laughs> years, and and I'm totally out of touch with how the real arts industry works, and that's of course why I said, well, you know what? If I'm having these kinds of problems, then I'm sure other people are also. So, my idea for the podcast was a to help me to better understand the contemporary art industry, mm-hmm. but also because I think other people are going to have the same problems also offer it to them basically. So mm-hmm. that's that's where mine came from. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm part of the problem because I'm part of <laughs> academia, but oh. I'm trying to be part of the solution. Well, you know, it's nice that you're doing a little bit of both here because I think that this is a, a major problem that is really, I feel like this is unraveling right now, right? With like coronavirus, faculty members, art faculty members having to be teaching from home. You know, like I have a friend that's teaching figure sculpture <laughs> on Zoom. It's like, how how do you even do that? But I also think what's happening is, you know, I graduated from grad school right after 2000, you know, like the economic fallout. And so there was a freeze on hiring, right? I couldn't get it. I couldn't get an adjunct job. I couldn't do anything. And now I'm kind of thankful for that because a lot of my friends who were graduating around that time were getting adjunct positions. And again, that's also, it's just all kind of imploding, I feel like. So starting this podcast, what you're doing, going into that conversation, and I think we are all finding a way out together, navigating what's going to be happening over the next few years or needs to happen in the arts. So, yeah. Okay, staying on the topic of text and writing, because it annoys mm-hmm. me to no end. Um, <laughs> the one thing that I've noticed that is becoming more common than I remember. Now, keep in mind, I've been in my ivory tower for a long time, but that I don't remember in my youth, which was 25, 30 years ago at this point, that artists had to write about their work in advance of Mm -hmm. making the work. So Mm -hmm. like now, if I want a grant, I have to, I can't just submit a body of work I've already produced. I have to submit samples of the quality of my work with a proposal for what I plan to do in the future. Same thing with residencies and all these other things. I find that to be utterly fucking ridiculous Mm -hmm. because I don't know what I'm doing when this podcast is over, much less what I'm doing (laughs) a year from now. And like, if it's a residency, there is no way in hell I'm going to know what kind of work or how I'm going to be moved or what I'm, what my mindset's going to be or what my materials are going to be available. If I go to a residency in a foreign country, like Mm -hmm. I really, really have a great disdain for the fact that there's this expectation of being able to eloquently and convincingly write about something I might do sometime, somewhere in some time of future. When I don't even know what I made last year, like so, like <laughs> I can't even write eloquently about the work I've already produced. But I'm supposed to theorize about the potential of work I might someday make. Yes, yes, it is crazy, isn't it? I mean, because you think about residencies, right? I'm. I was talking with a friend. She's like, nobody even knows if you make any fucking work at a residency. Honestly, you know. So I think we're so tied up in bureaucracy and well, you know how it is being a faculty member, all the, 
I don't even know all the shit you guys have to put together to get to the next level and the next level. You know, people love giving you paperwork. They love seeing that you spent the time working through all of it in order to be accepted for something because it shows, I don't know, dedication. It shows time spent. I don't know. So I, I would agree with that, you know, this idea of writing about your, your proposal. My proposal is, my hard thing is sometimes, I, I also curate exhibitions and putting together a possible exhibition where I then have to go out and contact multiple artists, you know, and say, I think, I don't know, I'm going to try and put this show together. We'll see. I don't even mess with that stuff anymore because it's too much work. You don't know if you're going to get anything for it. And you're also bringing in other people's expectations when you're doing that. And I just, I don't like to do that. So I wait until something's, I have the grant, I have a space to work with because yeah, it's just, it's a waste. It's a waste of time. Time suck. <laughs> but it's a waste of your like emotional energy because you get mm -hmm. involved in it and then other people's expectations and hopes get involved in it. And which is another pet peeve of mine right now, which is the, the whole granting system and stuff where they're all about partnerships. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. so like doing your work is great, but having you partner with a local school system and do a, yeah. a workshop or having to, you know, going to a residency, but also teaching a class at the local, whatever, mm -hmm. like, come on. Like I, you know what I want? I want somebody to just go, here's an application, put in your work. If we like it, we will just give yeah. you money. That's it. Mm -hmm. Like, we like what you do. We will give you money. No strings attached. I'm mm -hmm. so fucking tired of all the strings that are attached mm -hmm. and all the extra paperwork that we are then obligated to do after having received this because a we filled out a ton of paperwork to apply for it and then we have to fill out a ton of paperwork to validate it afterwards mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when we really just want to be left alone in our studios. Yeah, and I feel like that comes, part of that is so many people want to rely on artists and the arts to fulfill those workshops. Oh, you're an artist. You make things. You must really love working with youth to create murals. Exactly. And you know, some artists, that's part of their practice and that's amazing. But for other artists, that has nothing to do with what they're creating. And so I think it's just putting, again, too much on the artists that we expect of them, more free labor, which is a huge problem in the arts, free labor. Oh, don't you want to like pat, you know, add to your CV? No, <laughs> because time is more precious than any of that stuff at, at a certain point, you know? So my, my CV is almost 10 pages long. I don't need any more CV building. No, no. And I think it also, something that it starts to make you think about is what is your priorities? You know, what is it that you are going to go after and put your time into? If something is a little too complicated with putting together my paperwork, I just don't do it anymore because it's, it's not, is the payoff worth it? Always asking that, right? So yeah. Okay. On that line, it's a mm -hmm. good question that, that leads me into competitions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've learned to not like them. Um, but I, I know I'm sounding like a horrible pessimist today, but like, but in the past, I feel like I remember hearing like so-and-so won this award and now, be, and then like the juror or the, the people putting on the competition somehow backed them and they sort of built their reputation and did all this better. There is a glut of mm -hmm. just random competitions that get like juries of like a hundred different jurors 
that in the end, if you win it, all you get is a line on your CV saying, I won this competition, mm -hmm. but there's no career building benefit from it. So like none of those jurors are then going to say, oh, you know what? I'd love to publish you in my magazine or, hey, I'd love to make a book with you or, hey, I'd love to have you in my gallery. That doesn't seem to happen from these you know, massive international competitions. I really love that you're bringing this up. This is something I really love talking about and I've done a little bit of writing about and I've talked to students about. There is, like you said, there's like this glut of competitions because we have so many art students that have come into the world, right? You know, just thinking 30 years ago, 20 years ago, et cetera, it was a different playing field. And now there's so many artists or people with a BFA or MFA out there who are looking for, yeah, <laughs> looking for opportunities and people are going to take advantage of that. So there's a lot of these bullshit competitions out there that really don't equate to anything. And those are people that are just trying to take your money, uh, the vanity galleries, all of that type of stuff. And then, you know, on the other side, you have like these nonprofit spaces that are trying to hold exhibitions. And that's good at a certain level, I think, depending, again, we have to do our research. And I think that's what it comes down to is, you know, I don't think all competitions are bad. I've entered some and had some really good results from it, but you have to do your research on it and you just can't blast out and spend all your money. I mean, who wants to spend just, you could spend thousands of dollars doing that and it's not worth it. So I think it really takes the artist thinking about where do I, like, what do I want to do with my work? Where do I want to be connected? Do I want to be showing in New York? Do I want to be showing in LA somewhere international? You know, what are my goals and will these things lead to my goals? So, you know, I, I used the example in the past, I applied for this show in New York. You know, there was a modest fee for it. I think like 30 bucks, 15 bucks. And I put it in partially to support the space. It's Trestle Gallery in Brooklyn. I think they're doing some really great stuff. So I was putting it in for that. But I also wanted to connect with the juror, Sharon Loudon. And I didn't get into the show. <laughs> but I did connect with her. She wrote me. She's like, I really like your work, but it just doesn't fit with what I'm doing right here. And so I've gone on to, you know hang out with her a few times. I've interviewed her for the, the podcast in her space in Queens and kind of built this relationship. So I think that's the other thing I want to say about competitions is that it's a two-way street. So let's say you do get into this show and you connect with a curator or a juror or something. And I'm going to say this, but I think some artists hate to hear this. It becomes a little bit of your job to continue that relationship with that juror. You know what I mean? You just can't get into the show and then, oh, that's wonderful. Like send an email, you know, I don't know, follow them on some social media, uh, send them a card in the mail. I mean, there has to be some type of dialogue because to continue to work in the arts and show your work, you do have to have people see it. And also nobody wants to work with an asshole. You know, <laughs> the, bottom, the bottom line is mostly now because there are so many different people to work with. I mean, of course, if you're the top 1% in, in the arts, you, you can be that way if you want. And people are still going to be paying money and you actually can even build a reputation on that. But in general, for the rest of people out there working, like I don't want to work with somebody who I can't count on and who's kind of a dick, you know? So... That's kind of my view on competitions overall is they can be good depending on what they are, but there's a whole slew of them out there and most of them really aren't worth your time.
yeah, I'm, I'm very disillusioned by the general art competition industry that has, has sort of sprung up since basically I would say it has sprung up basically with the internet mm -hmm. because they're just what, I mean, I remember buying art news and art forum and looking in the classifieds in the back for the upcoming competitions that were available and then having to ship my slides out to them and like waiting and not having enough slides to enter all the competitions because <laughs> I, I only had like six copies so i had to be sure that i had chose the right six competitions because mm -hmm. i didn't have any more ah the old days <laughs> I love it. When I applied to grad school, I had to send slides, actually. Um, it was the last year that most places accepted slides. And I remember the tungsten film. And sh I still have them, actually, like shooting them. And I'm like, you guys applying now <laughs> to grad school or anything else? Like, it was a... Ugh, I had to black out the windows in my studio. You know how it is. Shoot it. It was such a production. And now it is easier to have images, right? Like I have my phone. I can go take some and I can shoot it off. And, you know, of course, different online competitions are going to take advantage of that. Or you can also look at it. This is something I've been thinking about recently is that if artists want more spaces to show their work, they're going to have to kind of go into these realms because there's galleries, of course, that are going to be showing in museums. And that's like a different tier of getting your work in there. It's not going to be a competition. You know, you need to know somebody who's kind of involved with it or have them see your work. But if you want to raise awareness, you know, you need to somehow be marketing. And how are you going to market? That's like a whole other world right there, too, which is crazy that we have to do all of these things. Thank you for leading me on to the next question. It was, mm -hmm. it's like you set me up for it. it absolutely beautiful. So you have been very good with social media and using all this stuff specifically with your podcast, because mm -hmm. the one thing that I, I like, in all honesty, before I even started my podcast, I was aware not of your podcast, but I was aware of your social media asking for artists to submit works. Mm -hmm. I don't know where, how it happened. I don't know. I don't remember. It was a long time ago, but I remember somebody either telling me, Hey, you should submit your work to, you know, I love your work <laughs> or, or maybe I got an email. I don't even know how it happened, but I was aware of it ahead of time before I even knew it was a podcast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you, so you have figured out some sort of cunning business plan model <laughs> to try to seduce people into like your, your social media and by doing that, they also say, hey, wait, that's also a podcast. <laughs> so so you seem to have done a, a you know, you've you've created a little mini empire in this way where because you're you're bringing in artists who want their work put out through your social media because you have a probably have a larger following than many of the people that submit. And then in turn, they get more exposure and then you get potential guests and you get more listeners. I mean, it's a really cunning plan. <laughs> I love that you're saying that because I stumbled into all of this. There was no plan and it worked out. I just, you know, and so it's interesting hearing about how you learned about the podcast. When I started the podcast, I decided I was going to be on Instagram. That was going to be like my little world because it works so well for artists. And so many artists are already on there and it's easy to share work. And it really grew through that. And I was very surprised <laughs> at how it started to multiply. 
And, you know, honestly, what has been really great about it is that I just get to show work that I like. Like I legit like the work. And so it has been really pleasurable for me to do, to to find new artists. Oh my God, I love what they're doing. Let me share it. Because again, I think it goes back to what I said earlier, which is part of my personality, part of what makes me tick is connecting people. Like I really love doing that. And so, yeah, it built from there. And then the submissions part, originally I just started it and it was free to submit because I was like, okay, people are looking at this. How can I show more people's work? Okay, well, I can't be spending all day like looking through hashtags. I don't even really know about all the hashtag like algorithm stuff. Like I don't, that's not my thing. Nor do I want to spend time trying to understand it. I don't think, I, I believe it's intentional <laughs> on their part to make it so you don't know how it right? works. I'm just like, okay. what the fuck? And then you can, yeah, it's insane. It is insane. So I was like, I'm just going to show work that I really like and try and, you know, ex get some exposure for artists. Because the thing is, you know, a ton of artists who are amazingly talented, who not that many people know about, you know. <laughs> Maybe not well, a con, but I mean, I know some. You. Yeah, I know. I know, I know if, yeah, enough. Yeah, enough, enough, right? And so I know a lot of artists whose work is really incredible, but they weren't getting, you know, people weren't seeing it. So anyway, it started with a free submissions. And I actually, it's now $5 to submit. And really- uh -huh. Building your corporation Big, and yes. your empire. It's good. Yes. I mean, I'm just, I'm on top of it. But to be honest, the reason I put the $5 charge on it was just because I was getting flooded. I mean, you can imagine just everybody. Was, and I, it takes my time away from my paintings and everything else to go through it. So that's why I just did that was to put a little bit of a you know, skin in the game. We'll put a little um, yeah. bit of a barrier to entry so that you just yeah. don't get absolute shit. Like, exactly. I mean, there is just, there is just a lot. And this is earlier you were talking about like how many artists there are in the world. I have a little, again, I feel like I'm a Debbie Downer today, but anyways, <laughs> the, I'm, I'm a, I'm a pessimistic optimist. Okay. Mm -hmm. I believe in the best, but I prepare for the worst. Mm -hmm. So Wise. the, I believe that the term artist is being substantially overused for things that would, I, I want another word. I want a word to differentiate and I'm, I'm kind of getting in trouble no matter what I say, but like, let's call it hobbyist versus professionals. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be, you could say conceptual art versus decorative art or commercial art. There's so many, things, but the problem is they're all still using the word art and artist. Mm -hmm. I wish there was a different word, an additional word that we could use instead of the word artist, because I feel it is far overused for way too many things because people are now makeup artists mm -hmm. and they are um, bedazzling shoes artists and, um, you know, quilt artists and sorry, quilters. And, you know, too many people are they taking on the word art. Same with curate. That's another pet peeve of mine right now because people are overusing curate everything these days. They've stolen our artistic vocabulary and they have you know taken it on and now we've lost the elite posh pompous <laughs> status that we had worked so hard for centuries to build. Yeah, no, I know what you're saying right there. It is... Um... It's a very popular thing right now. It, it makes me think about, remember how jocks and cheerleaders used to be really popular and then it became like the nerds kind of taking over and now it's the creative class. Like you go into Target 
And there is a clothing line for kids called Art Class, you know. You do know I live in Europe. We don't have a Target. Oh, you don't have Target. Well, then I'll I'll fill you in. There's a brand called Art Class, um, which I'm going to, I'm going to be really honest. My 90s self really loves it. I'm like, man, I wish I could fit in this like little stuff. But anyway, so I do, I do know what you're saying. And what's interesting is with I Like Your Work, there's a whole host of people that are interested in looking at the paintings or submitting work from, you know, I have a lot of people that studied art and then went on to a different career because they couldn't make any money. And then they're returning to it in retirement. There's professional artists. I have a ton of art students who are listening. And then I have people that you know, like to do the poor paintings or I don't know, maybe that type of stuff. So I have started using the term creatives. <laughs> but see, yeah, and, and I get that. I've been seeing that <laughs> a lot, but that's actually even more broad because that includes designers and commercial yes. artists and all this. So like, I mean, I love the term creatives, but it's not actually what I'm trying to address here. I'm mm-hmm. trying to it's like, it sounds really bad when I say this out loud, but I'm going to, I'm just going to go with it. But like, I'm trying to find a way to separate like the professionals from the non-professionals. Let's mm-hmm. do it. So separate the people who do it. I'm going to get in trouble. Do it seriously versus the people who don't do it seriously. But I mean, you get the idea, like a create, a, create a level or a cast system that says like, these are the ones to take important and these are not to be taken important. <laughs> You've been like, in Europe too long. Okay. I know. Okay. I know. I'm totally aware of just how horrible what I'm saying sounds as I'm saying it. But I can edit the podcast. So I can, if it, <laughs> if, if no. it goes horribly badly, I can remove all this. No, no. I, I, I had a previous conversation on another podcast where I actually said to a, a, a guest of mine who was a, a black man from Chicago and his friend who was a black man from the UK. And I said, so why is it that black people make black art and, and white people like, like, I mean, and it, it got horrible. It got yeah. so wrong. I was literally red faced while saying my questions. You were like, uh, Oh no, no, no. But Shut I left it, it in. No, no, I oh, left it in. Good for you. Good for you. You know, in. you're putting it out there and people learn from conversations like that conversation or this conversation about, you know, levels of making, I mean, and it's, I think it's a question that's unanswerable in so many ways because, you know, it's like people ask, well, do I have to have an MFA to be considered a serious artist? Right. Well, that's not my point. That Okay. Well, I don't, no, 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 no. I know. I yeah, know. Like, I know that's not what you're saying, but I'm playing saying into quality, that idea. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I'm saying sort of quality of work and whether that's craftsmanship skill or concept i don't care it's the quality of the work and whether it should be elevated to some different level of uh, appreciation Mm -hmm. there we go now i'm using big (laughs) words it sounds better Well, you know, no, and I totally understand everything that you're you're saying here, and, and there's so many ins and outs of it. But I think at the end of the day, what happens is that, and I'm trying to think of a better way of saying this, but you know, great work will rise to the top. And that's what people are gonna want to see. Oh, you don't think so? You don't Dad, oh I no. do. I no, do think I so. Oh, I totally no. see this is that thing. I hope so. <laughs> I hope I wish that was true. Yeah, yeah. But it's not. I mean, I've seen some really bad work out there, like really bad stuff, but I'm talking like 
that wouldn't even do well in a high school art class. And that is not, it's not going to, I just don't see, it's not going to be at a gallery. It's not going to be in a museum. But on the other hand, well, but the flip side of that is I have known many magnificent artists that basically couldn't hold out long enough in their career Mm -hmm. and had to give it up. So it's the point that like, basically like in, in a nutshell, if you stick it out long enough, sooner or later, you will succeed no matter what the quality of your work is like to a certain extent, tenacity almost breeds like some form of success. Hmm. I, yeah, that's an interesting statement. I like to think that see, and this is where we flip. I would like to think that, but I sadly don't think that that always occurs. You know, I mean, what are all these popular I don't know, articles that you're seeing pop up where it's like a 96 year old woman had her first solo exhibition and you're just like, oh, I can't even handle it. Like everybody's like, yay, that's so wonderful for her. And for me, I'm like, oh my God, I want to like vomit right now. This poor artist that's been like working and they're just, they're going to die tomorrow after their show opening, you know? Well, but not only that, but like, okay, great. So some 96 year old who had her first solo exhibition gets all kinds of international news and all this kind of stuff. Well, what about the hundreds of thousands of mm-hmm. artists around the world who are having solo exhibitions every month? Why are they not getting any accolades? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a good question, right? And that becomes another great, great question. And I guess it also plays into marketing right now, right? Because I start thinking about like, if you're showing and having a solo exhibition in your area, I think that people in your area will know about it that are in the arts, right? Maybe not over in country, whatever, whatever, and state, whatever, whatever. But if you want that type of reception, you either need to have your gallerist pushing that, your institution pushing that, or you have to push it. You know what I mean? And what does that bring you? I don't know. <laughs> like, does does that help your career? How does it help your career? Well, it was interesting. I was talking with a curator recently who works, it does side work for this no-name gallery not even a gallery exhibition space. I'll even just call it. And he was talking to like some artists about doing an exhibition. And he said, he said, yeah, nobody's going to show up for the exhibition. It's not about the exhibition. You're not going to sell anything. It's about the pictures you take and the, the, then post on social media. So, mm-hmm. and then be able to put onto your CV that you had an exhibition. That's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, to a certain extent, you know, like there was this, I don't even remember who it was. I think it was like Mizell or some some photographer when he was early in his career was given the opportunity to either become a, a fine art photographer or a commercial magazine photographer. And he's, he sat back and he said, he thought about it and he said, okay, if I, if I put my stuff in an art gallery, 2000 people might see it. If I put my stuff in a magazine, 2 million people will see it. Mm-hmm. So I would rather be more influential to more people than at a lower price point, let's say, than an elite snobby amount of people in a smaller crowd. Mm-hmm. And I thought like, yeah, okay, that's legit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it comes down to what you're comfortable with, you know, with your work and the path that you want to continue. You know, you're talking about so many great artists that give it up because they can't make ends meet. You know, I'm meeting some really wonderful artists who are in their 60s who, you know, they ended up becoming totally different things because they had a family or, you know, they needed to have a job. They needed insurance that they were in the U.S. and all that good stuff. And so I get it. So 
I think we're in an interesting time right now in thinking about how can you cobble together a living as an artist. And I do feel lucky that I'm able to make work now in this environment, to be totally honest, because I have been able to figure out ways to support myself that weren't possible before, you know, like charging $5 to submit on a podcast. My big, my yeah. big, uh, my big income right there. Right. I um, don't know how many people submit. Maybe <laughs> it is a big income. Well, it's been helpful, uh, as I've built with it through the podcast and, you know, just even learning things like about, and this is outside of art, but you know, advertisers, how do you work with advertisers and, and all of that good stuff? How do you get people to sponsor you? That's an excellent question. Please tell me <laughs> because I obviously don't have enough listeners. I mean, you can see my room that in my laundry behind me here. So yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, that's an interesting thing because art is a niche thing. Mm -hmm. Visual art is more of a niche thing. Podcasts are a niche thing. So how do you find somebody that really, really wants to advertise, sponsor, whatever, a three times at least niche thing that, uh, you know, and, and also wait, just to give an added one, it's in English. So mm -hmm. therefore it's not necessarily worldwide. So like, yeah, how do you find sponsors and advertisers? I would love to know. <laughs> Oh, such a good question. Um, I'm still exploring that myself, but I will say it is such a niche area, but there is a lot of money in that niche. You know what I'm saying? Sure. But is are you going to get like stamps.com or Casper mattress? I mean, like, are they really going to? Oh, those. Yeah. Right. That stuff. I don't know. I haven't contacted them, but maybe I should. No, I'm kidding. But no, there you're are. Not. <laughs> I'm like writing it down over here. Ooh, Casper. It's a huge question. I don't know. I, I don't know. But there are services that do serve artists. And that's really who I've started working with personally because they want to contact artists. They want to be in contact with those people that are like Squarespace. Something like that. Or even like, I'm going to give a shout out to Hannah Cole of Sunlight Tax. She has sponsored a lot of my episodes and she is a painter herself. She has gallery representation in New York and also in, I think, North Carolina. So she understands artists, but she also does taxes specifically for artists. And um, so this is her, her bread and butter right here. And I'm actually using her this year. I'm really excited <laughs> because that's, again, as an artist, how many hats do we wear? Like we're admin, we're doing all of these things. So, But like bartering, I love bartering. <laughs> I wish like, if I could barter for my mortgage and if I could barter <laughs> for like electricity, I would be all about it. And it's not just art. I mean, I'll do a podcast for them. I'll do, you know, I'll do their plumbing, drywall, whatever. <laughs> bartering, I, I wish would become a bit more popular. Yeah. Well, I think that, that it does happen though. Don't, don't you? I mean, I would love to actually, I have some drywall work that needs to be done in my studio if you were closer. Oh, drywall's easy. Come on. <laughs> I hate working with drywall, but anyway, what was I going to say? Bartering, I think is something that's interesting for, for the arts and artists. I think that we tend to do it more than other areas out of necessity, but uh, there is a bit of that. I think that still happens. I, these beautiful panels, I actually ended up bartering to have somebody build some of those for me, which was excellent. I 
supplied childcare. <laughs> so yeah, you know, okay. different ways yeah. you can do it. Yeah. I mean, artists are like creative on creative bartering that works well. But as mm -hmm. I said, I want to barter for rent <laughs> or mortgage or electric bill or internet. Why, you know, I want to barter with the corporations, not for other creative things because mm -hmm. more or less I can do most of the creative things I want, unless there's somebody I really love their work, but you know, mm -hmm. I get that. Mm -hmm. But it's it just won't happen, unfortunately, unless there's some massive worldwide cast catastrophe. Oh wait, <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> so maybe, maybe in the future, maybe. it might yep. be something nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny. I've had this conversation because, of course, I'm doing a lot of podcasts because we're all quarantined, and the conversation is basically like the. Coming out of this, I believe that creative fields across, you know, whether commercial or fine art, whatever, I believe that creative fields will be in great demand mm -hmm. because all these corporations, all these governments, all these whatever, they basically, they're going to have, like, uh, the way of the world is going to have to change mm -hmm. at some amount. And so the people who come up with these new creative, innovative ideas are the creative people. Mm -hmm. So I believe that the, it will be a, a bit of a, like a little, hopefully big, but probably mini renaissance of like the interest in the creative people to come up with creative ways out of this hole that we're currently in. No, I totally agree with that. I'm, I think that, of course, somebody was posting on some social media outlet about how what do people turn to in moments of crisis, not just for looking forward, but in terms of being entertained or, you know, being able to look at art on your wall or watch a show or something like that. I mean, at our core, we really need creatives in order to exist in this life and not be completely miserable, you know, sure. so it, it will be interesting to see what happens with all of this. I just suddenly dawned on me that like, you know, for all the uh, stuff we're watching on Netflix and all these mm -hmm. kinds of streaming services, nobody's making anything new right now. Mm -hmm. So like there's going to be a, a lull in the future or in the near future where there's no new content being made because mm -hmm. nobody can film anything. Right? They can't all get together. But there's a lot of paintings being made, thank goodness. <laughs> Different things. Like and I'm sure there are a lot of books being written and music yeah. being written and other sort of creative endeavors. But like, yeah, I mean, I suddenly realized I was like, oh, fuck, we're going to run out of TV shows at some point. And we're going to run out of movies at some point because they simply can't be producing them right now. I wonder if there'll be some interesting like monologue pieces, you know what I mean? It, it'll be, it'll be great to see. I, I mean, I hope there's some more that comes out, but yeah, you're right. That is a, a point. You can't get together and create these things. Or at least not these large scale things. Yeah. Yeah. Any topic that uh, you want to expand on that maybe have touched on? I think that you have covered quite a lot. I mean, if anything, I'd want to learn more about you, but that's part of my, <laughs> why I love running a podcast and asking questions. I'm an questions. open book. You're welcome to ask me anything. Yeah. Well, I know that you, you're a faculty at University of Maryland, correct? Currently. Yes. 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 So Online. Online. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about this because you are embracing kind of um, <laughs> what is happening. We are all forced to do right now. <laughs> I love my job. It's magnificent. Um, yeah, no, I, I teaching online 
it's great. It's fun. It's nice. It's not an art school, so mm -hmm. it's not a great sort of building the next generation of, of artists kind of thing. It's I teach at a university and as a general education and it's an elective. So like, it's a little different. It's not as uh, serious, uh, you know, as I would of course like to teach. Um, but it's fun. Like the, the students are interesting. They're from diverse backgrounds. They're all over the world. Like, I mean, I have students in Japan and Germany and the United States and, you know, all kinds of different uh, socioeconomic levels and all this kind of stuff, because the university of Maryland is really great at um, accepting a lot of like military uh, families and things like this. And so the, the range of interest and the range of capabilities and the range of their, skill levels are vast which mm -hmm. can be both fun but can also be challenging because mm -hmm. you're still doing it virtually but um like for me teaching visual arts i still find that the um uh, doing a, a, a meeting face to face or making videos like actually that's what i did for three hours this morning was make mm. feedback videos where i basically looked at their work and i walked through like this is good this is bad don't do this again try this more you know this kind of stuff and just did a a, a recorded video of me critiquing their works and then just sent that off to them so how long have you been teaching remotely or online four years oh wow wow I'm sure your skills are in high demand right now. <laughs> a lot of faculty would be like, please tell us because I can only, you know, they're scrambling so much. It's just insane. I feel like um, having to shift in such a short amount of time. Yeah, my skills to a certain extent have little to do with the course itself because, of mm -hmm. course, it's a, the University of Maryland is a large thing and, and many people teach the same class. So we actually mm -hmm. have a standardized class module so that every student, regardless of who they have as an instructor, is still getting the exact same learning experience. Mm -hmm. So the, the big difference that I do is, is more my feedback, mm -hmm, more mm -hmm. than the teaching per se, because the teaching itself is standardized between the different uh, professors. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, yeah, it's a lot less active teaching and more active feedback and constructive criticism to assist them in doing the the work better. Well, that is really, it's interesting to hear about. I am wondering what's going to be happening. I don't know if you've heard this, but Boston University, for example, has decided not to do fall classes. So things, you know, so there's a lot happening again in higher ed and the arts are always one of the first areas, <laughs> sadly, uh, to be shifted out the window. So I was just reading an article before we got on about how the uh, academia, because a lot of them are saying they're not going to open in the fall and things like this, that they're um, just letting people go yeah. and, and, and putting on hiring freezes. So like no new hiring. So like, while you say my, my, my specialization is, is in great demand, it's actually not in great demand because they don't have the budget, even mm -hmm. though they need more people, because mm -hmm. now there's this sudden need for online teaching, they don't have the budget in advance mm -hmm. to say, oh yeah, we should hire more people for this. Well, what I think is going to be kind of interesting in terms of how it shifts and not in a good way for us, but artists, so many of them, or us, what is a stable way to have an income and have a life, of course, is teaching. And that has just been chipped away at over the past 10 years, you know. So with these hiring freezes, 
I'm wondering what is going to occur with the really talented art students who are going out there into the quote unquote real world and trying to make a living. And I hope that, again, using our ability to think outside of the box, I do think artists are good at that. We're able to cobble together some really <laughs> weird jobs and bizarre living experiences. So not only those. But there, there are also those great professors who are magnificent professors, incredibly motivating and inspiring and all this stuff that are not very good artists, which mm -hmm. do exist. Mm -hmm. Now, they're going to be really royally screwed because like, mm -hmm. they put their whole emphasis of their entire career into being a great teacher and not keeping up with their artistic practice necessarily. And mm -hmm. now they may be out of jobs. Now, those people I probably worry more for because they, you know, they would have no opportunities. Whereas mm -hmm. people who have kept up with their artistic practice, they at least have some opportunities available to them, though limited and though difficult, mm -hmm. there are mm -hmm. opportunities. Yeah. It's a crazy time out there for, for all of us. I mean, we're all in this together. So it's really crazy. So how are you doing? So you have your own artistic practice. You have your mm -hmm. podcast. What other things are you doing? But mostly what I'm trying to get to is, how are you selling your artwork? Are you doing it through a gallery? Are you doing it online? How are you, know, are you is it a sustainable, like you mm -hmm. said, sort of like, you know, income that's uh, helping you to stay productive? So this is something that I'm really interested, of course, for my own existence and also for other artists. And I call this idea that I've been talking about with other artists, uh, flexible sustainability. So I have multiple That's contradictory in terms, you know, that. <laughs> exactly, that's exactly. Okay. That's the beauty of it, right? But in order for artists to have an income, you have to be able to, to, be flexible. It's not, you know, and this is for artists who aren't in, you know, your position of faculty for a long time. You know what I mean? I mean, you could be, but people that have tenure track, et cetera, you have to be able to shift and keep up with things. So for me, for my income, what I've been able to do together is number one, um, I do consulting. That's probably my biggest income. And I talk about this a lot. So I worked in art admissions for a long time, well, a few years, for University of Michigan, and I actually still review applications for them of artwork. So I review artwork for them for their um, college program or their, yeah, their college programs and pre-college programs. And through that experience- Wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. Do you get paid to look at student applications to a program, even though you don't work there technically? I do work there technically okay. still. Okay. So I, I worked there for three years. And what I did there is they sent me around the US. They also do international programs more so now, but I'm, I'm not there. So every weekend I was in a different city reviewing artwork of students who were interested in our program or just interested in getting feedback on their work. And so I did that. And it was actually a really great time because I'd go to a city, I'd go to the museums, you know, I do some studio visits. I'd look at artwork, I'd fly somewhere else. It was really wonderful. But you can only do that for so long. I was kind of sick of traveling all the time. So I left that and I started this consulting business where I worked with students who were interested getting feedback on their portfolio to prepare it for applying to a BFA or MFA program. And that was really interesting because I was, of course, contacted by students and parents but I also started to be contacted by these larger firms that were putting together 
they were already working with students and parents, but they were trying to get into more of the arts realm. So I'd basically help them set up a program. And again, it's a lot like the podcast. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I just, I mean, I knew what I was doing, but I didn't know how to market it or move forward that way. But it, you, you learn A and then you go to B and then you go to C. So it was kind of amazing how it all did come together. So now I still do a bit of consulting and I still review portfolios for University of Michigan, which has been incredible. So that's like one portion of what I do. Then there's the podcast, of course. I do some curation, so I make some income off of that. And then I have representation through Contemporary Art Matters in Columbus, Ohio, so some sales through that. Before that representation, I was selling work through Instagram and that type of thing, or exhibitions where my work would be in an academic gallery or something like that. But I could not exist on sales alone. There's no way. It's a portion of my income. But again, it's really through this ability to work in different avenues and pull it together. And the bottom line for that, though, becomes time management. And that's something I actually talk a lot about with artists is I think in order to be able to be in your studio, and like I said, I have two kids, so be a, a mother, to be a consultant, all these things, I, I do have to be pretty good with my time. So that's that's what I do to support myself. Is that your way of saying you need to leave? <laughs> so thank you. This has been really great. And no, 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 no. It's not that at all. It is... It is something that, well, I guess I'll go into this. I'm thinking about actually putting together some online courses specifically for artists, mostly female artists who are mothers as well. I find that there seems to be a huge drop-off of women. And this is one reason I originally didn't think I was going to have kids. I did not think I was going to go down that path because painting was what I did. That was my career. And honestly, I wasn't encouraged to have children if I really wanted to be an artist. And I've talked to a lot of men who were told the same thing, but I wanted to have that in my life. And so if I can use my experience and how I was able to continue not only to paint, but go on to get gallery representation after that, to start artist spaces after having children, if I can use that experience and help other women stay, quote unquote, in the game or whatever it is, I, I really want to be able to do that. So that's something that I'm thinking about creating in the future. Okay. Sounds like a necessary thing. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I've had the same conversations with people in Europe where they, they talk about, because oftentimes, well, like specifically like here in the Czech Republic, they the government actually has a thing where the government pays mm -hmm. uh, it's not no it's uh what's it called after giving birth it's um postpartum kind of payment i know i know they do it in no, france that's depression no no no, <laughs> no um, um uh well it's just child no, it it's post postpartum care is something okay. that we have, you know, well, here. But they, so. Yeah, but they get three years mm -hmm, mm -hmm. funded by the government. Amazing. Mothers do, mm -hmm. not fathers, mothers. A little mm -hmm. sexist. I'm fine with that though. But, <laughs> but but they get three years. So like it's very common here to have three year gap in your either your employment if you're working somewhere or your career. Mm -hmm. Um and it's 
I've had heard stories of it being very difficult for people with specifically women who have children have, and then they, they end up having three to six year gaps where they haven't been as productive or haven't been as exhibiting as frequently or whatever. And they have a lot of difficulty to sort of get back into the art world because they have to explain where they've been and people are, seem to not be very receptive to the idea of them having a family. Yeah, it's definitely an, an issue. And to be honest, the reason I got into consulting is because I was didn't want to have a gap on my resume for my work history. And so my friend, she called it my beard job. <laughs> a beard, beard, beard job. Okay. I thought you said a beer, like a <laughs> No, no, no. Okay. Well, that could have been an interesting time too. But uh, no, my beard job, because I really originally was like, I don't know if I'm going to get any clients, but I want to at least have this website up and show that I'm still trying to be active. And then I, I did, of course, get clients and it, it took off. Yeah, it's really a tragedy that there isn't more support in the US for, for uh, women and women artists, you know, and mothers. So yeah. Other countries do it right. Yeah. Yeah. I know a friend of mine was in France and she was talking about like postpartum, how she was able to get uh, government money to bring in a nanny, you know, for a year and have the support. Whereas, you know, here <laughs> I was really scrambling to find childcare just to get a day in the studio, you know? So that's a whole, a whole thing right there that can be challenging. Indeed. Thank you very much for your time. All right. Take care. Bye.